Uh, this evening in your Bibles, congregation, we would invite you to turn to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. We'll read the chapter in its entirety. You can find this on page 1366 in your pew Bible. And then we're going to use the words of our text from verses 13 through 14. This evening we begin a series, eventually hoping to make our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, but we want to have an introductory sermon so we will not actually be referencing directly one of the Lord's Days of the Catechism, so we will not read one of the Lord's Days of the Catechism, uh, but we have in mind an introduction sermon uh, on a series which we hope to commence uh, concerning the Heidelberg Catechism. And I thought it fitting for us to read together from 2 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind." Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me, and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And this you know, that all those in Asia who have turned away from me, among whom Phygelus and Hermogenus, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. And therefore our reading from the Word of God. But we would draw your attention especially to verses 13 and 14 where there is this command, this exhortation, this encouragement, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so this evening, congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we, we want to begin our series of the Heidelberg Catechism with an exhortation to hold fast uh, to the sound words which we have received. 
Uh, you well know by now that uh, in my sermons I begin with an introduction to the congregation, but I want to take the liberty this evening to speak uh, just a brief word to those who may be joining with us, uh, who may join with us somewhat routinely uh, through the radio ministry uh, or through the internet. Uh, maybe you are old or older, and you hear about the Heidelberg Catechism, and maybe you remember a day in which you were younger, and in which you were instructed in the Heidelberg Catechism, and in which you heard sermons based upon the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, if you are able, we certainly invite you to join with us through the radio and through the internet, but also, if able, in person. Uh, we warmly welcome you to come and to receive instruction in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you're younger and the topic of the Heidelberg Catechism and the reference to it piques your interest. To you also, we, we warmly invite you and welcome you to come and to join with us, if able, in person as we consider these glorious truths of Scripture that have been communicated from one generation to another generation through the means of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Lord complains through His prophet in the Old Testament that His people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The knowledge that the prophet speaks of there, or more properly, the knowledge that the Lord speaks of there, is a lack of theological knowledge, a lack of doctrinal knowledge. And, and that congregation is one of the strengths of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer format summarizes the truths, the teachings, the doctrines of the Scriptures and communicates those truths, those life-giving truths, not only to our generation but also to subsequent generations. And that's in part why we chose to read from 2 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul reflects upon this multi-generational transition of the faith uh, as a baton of the faith is passed from those who are older to those who are younger. Uh, and so Timothy is encouraged to remember the words that he has received from the instruction through his grandmother and his mother. And many of you who hear these words, uh, you also received instruction from your grandparents and your parents. You also received instruction in catechism classrooms and through the faithful pulpiteering of ministers who preach the Word of God as summarized within the Heidelberg Catechism. And so for this purpose, we have before us, as we make our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, this goal to simply expound the basic truths of the gospel. And we don't pretend that we are going to do something mysterious. We don't pretend that we are going to do something overly deep. Uh, the catechism is written for instruction. And instruction, usually if it's going to be successful, must be simple. Uh, and that is our goal then, to simply make our way through the biblical truth of the gospel as that biblical truth is summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, there is a long history of using the Heidelberg Catechism, which was originally composed in 1563 by the request of Prince Frederick, uh, written predominantly by Zacharias Ursinus, a young theological instructor, uh, but also Caspar Olivianus, and others also, young ministers in the heartbeat of the Reformation. 
And Prince Frederick wanted a catechism, a question and answer format, a very common format throughout the Reformation, but he wanted a catechism in which his people, his subjects, those who he ruled over could be instructed in the biblical faith that was coming to a renewed understanding in the days of the Reformation. And almost immediately upon uh, the reception of the Heidelberg Catechism, the Reformed churches in that area uh, of Germany, uh, and then also in the lowlands, what would eventually become known as the Netherlands, received the Catechism, reading it with their biblical uh, evaluation and accepting it as a faithful summary of the Word of God. And then the ministers in the churches deemed it suitable to use this roadmap, you might say, or this skeleton of theology as a basis for the instruction that they would give their congregations uh, from Sunday to Sunday. Nearly 450 years later, we continue to do the same. Not, we hope, just merely out of tradition, but hopefully we continue this tradition because we understand that it is profitable, profitable for our instruction in doctrine. And so we continue to believe that the truths of the Heidelberg Catechism are relevant. Catechism preaching really is nothing other than topical preaching, the topics or the doctrines being those that are within the Bible. And we know that the Bible is the Word of the Lord that abides forever or that endures forever, and it always has a relevancy. Uh, Some critics might laugh at the practice that we engage in this evening uh, of preaching a system of theology as that system of theology is organized in the Heidelberg Catechism of doing the same thing that has been done for 450 years, but we make no apologies for doing so because we are convinced that the truths of the Heidelberg Catechism are extremely relevant. Uh, An anecdotal evidence of this, and then also a quote to support the anecdotal evidence. From time to time, as you can well imagine, we're called to minister to those elderly saints who are on their deathbed. Now, what do you say to a person upon their deathbed? Well, you go with Scripture, of course, but also with the truths of Scripture, and it is remarkable and it is encouraging to stand or to sit next to an elderly saint's deathbed, perhaps even as they struggle for breath itself, and to ask them, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And maybe we just a barely audible whisper to have them say along with yourself that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And as your pastor, my goal, my hope, my prayer is that in all of life, but especially in that moment of death, that you also would be able to say with sincerity of heart that you have comfort the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of knowing that you are not your own, but the comfort that comes knowing that you belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. A quote, much has changed since 1563, but the basic questions about life and death, sin and grace, God and man have remained ever the same. Much has changed since 1563, 
But the basic questions about life and death, sin and grace, God and man, have remained ever the same. And so with our Bibles before us, using the summary of scriptural truths within the Heidelberg Catechism, with prayerful expectation that the Lord would use these sermons to encourage us in the faith and to communicate that faith to subsequent generations, we look this evening by way of introduction upon our theme, Holding Fast the Sound Words. Now we do so by first of all looking at the content of sound words, uh, then secondly the purpose of sound words, and then thirdly the value of sound words. But what does that word sound mean? Sound has this idea of solid solid with substance to them, true, because words are cheap, and there's plenty of them, especially in our culture, uh, where either audibly uh, or through other forms of communication, people seem to talk without ceasing. And that in and of itself demands that we evaluate the words Uh, which we hear and the words which we speak are the words that we receive sound words. Do they have substance of truth to them? Well, in evaluating sound words of theology, of doctrine, of God, of man, of sin, of salvation, of grace, and of mercy, we must, of course, first go uh, to the Scriptures alone. To the Scriptures alone we go to determine what are sound words. And sound words are those which we find in Scripture, but also those words which agree with Scripture. And so in our doctrine and in our theology, we don't always just simply quote text, but based upon the text of Scripture, based upon the revelation of the Word of God, uh, we derive sound words, true words, theological statements, and that's something of the content of sound words. A, a sound, a solid, a true, a reliable word is, first of all, a word of doctrinal truth. And, and that phrase in and of itself has fallen on hard times in our era. I suppose if we were going to make some type of uh, brochure introducing our church or our congregation to the community, and if we were to say, well, we are going to emphasize doctrine, some might say, well, that's not a good approach. That's not a very uh, winsome approach. But that'd be out of a misunderstanding of what doctrine is. Doctrine is just simply what we believe about God. And what we believe about everything in relationship to God. The same is true of the phrase theology. Theology is just simply our study of God and then the derived conviction that we have about God. And so while some say that I'm not a theologian, R.C. Sproul, of course, is correct when he says everyone's a theologian. And so you as my listener and I as a speaker tonight you are a theologian. You have a belief about God. You have a conception about God. And you have a belief about yourself in relationship to God. And you have a belief about Jesus Christ. And all of those beliefs and many more could be identified. That makes up your theology. That makes up your doctrine. And collectively, that makes up our theology as a church. But Our theology must be sound theology. It must be true doctrine. 
in accordance with the words of Scripture. Because what we have in the words of Scripture is the self-revelation of God. And not only the self-revelation of God in the sense that God gives the self-revelation, but God Himself comes, and, and yes, to a limited capacity given our finite minds and His infinite existence, God reveals some truths to us about Himself, and then also truths about ourselves in relationship to God, and truths about salvation. And, and so the apostolic church emphasized doctrine. Uh, we read, for example, in Acts 2, verse 42, about the apostles in the apostolic church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and in prayers. So four different items are identified of their continuation. Notice the emphasis upon a continuation. We looked at this last week, Sunday morning, so we won't pause too long here. But notice this continued emphasis that runs all throughout Scripture hold to these things, continue in these things. And the apostolic church, they continued, and the first item that is identified in what they continued in was the apostles' doctrine, the teachings of the apostles concerning God, concerning Christ, concerning man, concerning salvation, concerning the forgiveness of sins, concerning justification, concerning sanctification. This is the very essence of what it means to be a believer, to continue on in the doctrine, the apostolic doctrine concerning the Word of God. And so you might say that it is absolutely vital to know and to believe with a vibrant faith our doctrine. And we could individually and also as a congregation, and it would be good for the leadership of the congregation to reflect from time to time purposefully how mature are we in our theology? How mature, how robust, how biblical is our understanding of doctrine? Are there areas in which our doctrine needs to be brought into conformity to the Word of God? Are there areas in which uh, there is a lack of sound words. Uh, what can be done to increase our theological knowledge? What can be done to preserve our doctrinal understanding? And one of the most time-tested ways of preserving theological truth and doctrinal understanding within a congregation is to hold to the three forms of unity. To hold to them not just as you would hold to a historic artifact, but to hold to them uh, with a certain zeal to use the Heidelberg Catechism along with the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort and say this is what we believe concerning doctrine, concerning theology. This is what we believe about the Word of God. This is what we believe about the Trinity. This is what we believe about the steps of humiliation and exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what we believe about how a person can be right with God. Because apart from uh, such doctrinal statements that are time-tested, well, then a congregation very quickly uh, just ebbs and flows following every strange wind of doctrine that might flow through. And so an encouragement, yes, to rightly understand the confession's relationship to Scripture. They are not equal. We receive the confessions because we believe that they faithfully summarize Scripture. Scripture alone is infallible, inerrant given its inspired character, but we believe that our confessions are faithful summaries, and so let us 
double down, so to speak, on our efforts, that they would not find just simply some place in our congregational life similar to the historical village here in Palo, where you can look uh, maybe on a weekend when you don't have anything else to do, and you can go into the bakery and you can say how things were baked 200 years ago. That's not the purpose of our confessions. The purpose of our confessions is that they might be used to explain and to summarize biblical words of doctrinal truth, but not only biblical words of doctrinal truth, also biblical words of practical implication. Sometimes individuals object and say, well, doctrine is so cold, so boring, so abstract, so disconnected from my Mondays, my Wednesdays, and my Fridays. That's a misunderstanding of doctrine. Doctrine is indeed practical. We've said it before, and we'll probably say it again, but you and I, we do what we do because we believe what we believe. As a man thinketh, so he is, is a time-tested statement of reality. And you'll notice as we make our way through our Heidelberg Catechism that there are these wonderful questions, these questions that really get to where the rubber meets the road, proverbially saying, and it asks you, what does it profit you to believe this? I think by way of passing illustration of the doctrine of providence. First in Lord's Day 10, there is the question, what do you understand by providence? That the almighty and ever-present power of God continues to uphold and govern all things. And then it's almost as if the instructor says, very well, student, you've done good with your answer, but now what does it profit you? That I can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. You see how practical it is? If you believe what you say you believe about providence, if the Mondays, the Wednesdays, and the Fridays are days of adversity, you can be patient, knowing that God rules over everything. And if the Mondays, the Wednesdays, and the Fridays are profitable, you can be thankful knowing that God rules over all things. And also, of course, there is that section in the Heidelberg Catechism that deals with how we are to show forth our thankfulness to God, and that especially applies to our practical life as it makes its way to the commandments, dealing with all ten commandments. How does your understanding of God, of His exclusivity, how does that impact who you worship and how you worship? What could be more practical than that? And how does your understanding about God, how does that impact how you interact with your fellow man in the context of work and in the context of authority and in the context of human sexuality and in the context of your business transactions? And so theology, doctrine, the catechism is not abstract is not disconnected from life, but indeed is most practical. And let us uh, follow the example of the Apostle Paul. We've mentioned this uh, in our men's Bible study about the structure of an epistle. We mentioned it also in our introduction into Ephesians. But the Apostle Paul, he always constructs his epistles by looking at the theological indicatives first. These are true statements about who God is. And then there's always that transition in his epistles. Now, therefore, because this is who God is, and because this is what God has done, now therefore you do this, or you 
believe this or you respond this way. Uh, And our catechism, by and large, reflects that same structure. What do you believe? What does it profit you? And so this is not just some cold abstract content, but this is content of biblical words of doctrinal truth and also then their practical implications. Well, if those are the sound words, what is their purpose? And that's our second point as you follow along, perhaps in your outline, the purpose of sound words. And again, by reminder, sound words are biblical words, words of biblical truth, words of biblical truth about God and about ourselves and about salvation. The purpose of these sound words is a twofold purpose to glorify God and to save sinners. Now, those are not two disconnected purposes, but interconnected purposes. God is glorified by the salvation of sinners. Uh, we will attempt to be brief on the first sub-point to glorify God because we emphasize that, or at least we attempted to emphasize that this morning, but just notice that this is the end. This is the goal of all theology, of all doctrine, to glorify God. And if you, if we, and especially if I, in the position of an office bearer, of the minister of the Word, if our study of theology stops short of the glorification of God, then our study of theology is most amiss. And that's why it's most troubling but also most concerning to interact with a proud theologian. Because a proud theologian is a deceived theologian. The more we come to really know about God, the more that our souls ought to glorify God and God alone. I've often thought, and sometimes in a self-condemning way, but isn't it awfully ironic that you can meet people who are very proud of their knowledge of total depravity? They can boast that they know the doctrine of total depravity better than the Arminian down the road. Well, the person who really knows his or her total depravity, that doctrine, will be a person who is most humble, but a person who also gives most glory to God. And maybe a point of application for us as a congregation. Do we pride ourselves in our theological knowledge and our doctrinal fidelity? Well, theological knowledge and doctrinal fidelity are good gifts of God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit. And so maybe we as a congregation, we go from our fathers and our grandfathers, and through the instrumentality of our grandmothers and our mothers, we have received uh, the Reformed faith. We have received the biblical faith, and by the goodness of God, we have held to that. And that's all very well and good, but let us not become proud of who we are in regards to our theological knowledge or our doctrinal convictions. Let us humbly give thanks to God and let us consistently give praise to God. Sound works of doctrinal truth glorify God by making known His work. And you can think of the the whole spectrum of His works. You can begin, as our catechism will begin, with God the Father and especially His work of creation. And so when when we look at the doctrine of creation, it's not just so that we can sharpen our swords and go attack the secular evolutionist but first and foremost, that we can look upon the glorious evidence 
and the result of the handiwork of our God, that we can look upon, yes, even uh, the streams and the fields and the trees and the skies, that we can say, behold the handiwork of our God, how great thou art. Now, yes, in engaging in apologetics, we will defend the faith against secular evolution. But see, that's not our first and foremost goal, to just annihilate intellectually the person who has believed the lie of evolution. Our first goal would be that we would glorify God by acknowledging His handiwork. And what ought to motivate us to defend the faith against those who deny the faith or those who pervert the faith or those who twist the faith? There ought to be a holy zeal worked up within us uh, that when the lie of evolution is presented, it robs God of His glory. You see the difference between saying, oh, I want to show my intellectual superiority over that evolutionist by attacking him or her and saying, I must with humility defend the work of my God, because His hand has made all that we see, not just simply the result of time plus chance. And so the glory of God must be continually at the forefront of who we are and of what we are about. And this also is an opportunity for personal self-reflection and for the leadership of this congregation for pastoral reflection. Uh, Do we have this primary focus that the glory of God is our consuming object of desire and affection? Now, in connection, of course, with the glorification of God is the salvation of sinners. The purpose of these sound words, the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of theological truth is the salvation of sinners. God, to reference the Belgian Confession, Article 2, God has revealed Himself as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to His glory and our salvation. Again, we said sound words are words that are truth. Words that are true, especially in regards to the need of salvation and the way of salvation. And here again, sadly, there are so many lies that abound within our culture and also within our churches. First of all, concerning the need of salvation, there are many who would deny the need of salvation or at least downplay the need of salvation. Sadly, many a pulpit is probably occupied in this day by a man who is telling the congregation how great they are. And if you tell a congregation long enough how great they are, eventually the cross is eclipsed because no one sees any need for the cross. In contrast to that sound words, comes and says there is a desperate need of salvation given the reality of our sin and our alienation from God. This is, you might say, uh, antiquated theology, but it's not wrong theology. This is the message that was given from the beginning why do you think that Adam and Eve needed to be clothed with the skin of a sacrificial animal? Why do you think blood had to flow all throughout the Old Testament, culminating in the blood of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I assure you it was not just for what is known as the moral example theory. The moral example theory says that Christ died and suffered that horrific experience on the cross of Calvary just simply in a desperate appeal to communicate to you and to I how much God is displeased with sin and how much He longs for us to return 
No, upon the cross understood properly there was a propitiation, atoning sacrifice. Jesus died there as our substitute. This is the way of salvation. And growing ever closer, our distortions about the way of salvation, even in Reformed denominations now, what's known as penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ substituted in our place and suffered the penalty of our sin. In denominations that at least outwardly hold to the three forms of unity, teachings are tolerated, accepted, allowed, that deny that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And in that context, the Apostle Paul's exhortation comes to you and to me, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Because these winds of strange teachings are blowing all around us. And they will come and they will confront us. And when they do confront us, we must go back to the Scriptures and to the confessional statements that summarize the Scriptures and ask, are these things true? Did Christ simply die on the cross to make an open display of how much the Father loves us? Or did He do something more there on the cross because of the Father's love for us? Did He actually bear my curse? Did He satisfy for my sin? And indeed, that is the biblical answer. That is the sound word. And with that sound word, there comes the comfort of salvation. The comfort, and you uh, well know if you are at all familiar with the catechism, that comfort is this grand theme that runs all throughout. It's the golden thread. Uh, Tying uh, into biblical truths, such as are expressed in Isaiah 40, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. And that's what the catechism seeks to do, but this comfort is not just a, you know, a rub on the shoulder or a, a cute little hug in a time of distress. This comfort is a solid confidence. What is your only confidence? Notice that the Reformed Christian should be a man or a woman of spiritual confidence based upon these sound words. What is your only comfort, your only confidence? The confidence of salvation, the confidence of reconciliation, the confidence that I have peace with God. And the Christian church in the Western world is going to have to refocus upon this confidence because our confidence congregation, although yes, certainly we are engaged politically and we hope uh, that the government would reform its ways, but our hope ultimately is not in princes or kings or horses or military equipment or human might or strength. Our confidence is in our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I can assure you that that confidence is a solid confidence. Many a saint has made their way safely through the Jordan River passing from this life into eternal life through the valley of the shadow of death, saying that they have no fear because their God is with them, because they know their Savior. And I want to take the pastoral opportunity now to pause and ask, do you have solid comfort? Do you have reliable confidence? for time and for eternity? Our life is so fleeting. As a minister, you begin a series on the Heidelberg Catechism, and you think, well, 
in 52 weeks, and I know we don't perfectly follow the pattern of 52 weeks. You think, on oh, 52 weeks, I'll begin the catechism again. But do we know that? I have Lord's Day 1 sermon planned, but do I know that I will preach that sermon? Do you know that you will hear that sermon? And congregation, don't misunderstand. These are not attempts to scare you into some type of action. These are just simply pastoral reminders of the reality of the fleeting nature of our life. You and I sit here in our pews, many of us in nearly the exact same pews week after week, and that's fine. And we think, well, next Sunday we'll be here, and that routine is good. But you cannot guarantee me, and I cannot guarantee you, that you will be sitting in that pew or that I will be behind this pulpit because our lives are like a vapor. So what then is your confidence? What then is your comfort? It has to be that I am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And if that is not your confidence, then I call upon you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for time and for eternity. These are the sound words that have comforted many a saint, and they are valuable words. Uh, in our third point, the value of these sound words of doctrinal truth and practical implications are valuable for us and are valuable for our children. Two ways in which these sound words of confessional biblical truth are valuable for us is they preserve, they preserve the old paths. They preserve the sound words. We call ourselves, boys and girls, a Reformed church. That's a compound word. You can ask your grammar teacher about it. Re, and then form. To form again. And why did there have to be a reformation? Why did there have to be a reforming? Because there was a deforming. Because the pattern of sound words had been lost. And so also will be for us if we don't continually reform and hold fast the pattern of sound words. And so from day to day, year to year, in our own life as a congregation, our theological understanding is held together by these sound words of biblical truth as summarized within our confessions. And so tomorrow evening, if I have the schedule in my mind right, all of the delegates of the United Reformed Churches of North America in North America, not of North America. Prepositions are important. We will stand, and by standing, we will give assent that we believe the truths of the Scriptures as summarized in the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. We will continue a long tradition of practices, saying these are the theological truths that we believe not only preserving, but unifying. See, that will be our unity. We will come from various states. We will come with various backgrounds. We will come with various concerns. We will even come with various goals and desires for synod. But we will come in one faith. We come believing, in essence, the same things. And how do I know that that delegate that shows up from Southern California believes the same thing that I do? Because he also stands in a sense to the three forms of unity. 
he also says, yes, I believe the pattern of sound words of biblical truth as they are summarized in the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort. And these sound words are valuable for our children and for our grandchildren. Uh, John writes in one of his general epistles, I have no greater joy than what? Some of you already have finished that verse in your head. John doesn't say, I have no greater joy than I have a rising stock market portfolio because that ultimately is in our comfort and confidence. I have no greater joy, he says, than to hear that my children walk in the truth. As a congregation, we do need to be forward-looking, not forward-looking in some unspecified way, but forward-looking in one of our greatest endeavors should be communicating the truth to the next generation. Because why do churches, local congregations, cease to exist? I suppose for a variety of reasons that could be analyzed and discussed. Also a good topic for the leadership of a local congregation. But sadly, oftentimes, churches cease to exist because of a failure to communicate sound words to the next generation. And so if you could give your children one thing, what would it be? And if you could give your grandchildren one thing, what would it be? Wouldn't it be these sound words that Lois and Eunice gave to Timothy? But you might object and say, well, only the Holy Spirit can give that conviction, and indeed, that's exactly right. And so what is our role in relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit? To be instruments, to be instruments seeking through our teaching and through our preaching and through our instruction to communicate from one generation to the next these sound words, and then doing so with prayer, earnest prayer, that the Lord would bless the souls and the minds and the wills of our children and of our grandchildren. And for some of you, by God's good providence, you can also pray this for your great-grandchildren. Lord, may they also hold to these sound words of biblical truth. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich privilege and benefit that is ours, that we can come here freely tonight, that we can open up our Bibles, that we can read it, that we can consider it together. We thank you also for the heritage that is ours. Indeed, when we think about the instruction that we have received from our parents, our grandparents, of pastors and of elders and of catechism teachers who went before us, uh, Lord, we must confess with gratitude to you that the lines have fallen unto us in most pleasant places. Uh, we pray that you would bless us in the upcoming weeks as we consider these truths, biblical truths, the sound words of theology, and also of practice. And we pray that your word would accomplish its purpose also to this, for Jesus' sake, amen.